Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Planet Podcast. And today we're joined by John Commerce. He's the managing principal of Visible City that supports those involved in city planning and real estate to access and interpret data for decision making. And previously, John worked in the municipal finance and policy fields, uh, both in the private and the non-private sectors. And he's also an adjunct instructor of urban studies at the University of Minnesota. And John previously taught economics at St. Catherine University. Welcome to the podcast, John. Thank you so much, Alexander. Really, thank you for the invitation. Yeah, nice to have you here. Can you describe to the listeners what your work is at Visible City? Um, my pleasure, absolutely. Our work at Visible City is all about helping clients to uh, really work through the uh, explosion of data that's occurring all around us and uh, using that uh, accessibility of, of data to inform decision-making in cities. So we work with public agencies at the local and state levels, uh, and we work with a lot of private firms, and we work with philanthropic organizations also, all focused on uh, really looking to leverage uh, current data and voluminous data to inform their choices around city planning, around real estate investment, around uh, transportation, around food security, energy, et cetera. There's a range of topics that we enjoy exploring on behalf of our clients. Okay, so so what kind of data? Is this like remote sensing data or is it population demographic data or what, what kind of data are we talking about? It, it really depends on what the, the client's core questions are. We are very opportunistic in terms of looking to tie in uh, what data we can find that will inform their choices. I should say up front that we've got a very specific data privacy policy that we follow because we believe very strongly in the integrity and the ownership of individuals of data that they generate. So we want to be very respectful about uh, those rights, whether they're recognized in current law or not. Uh, but I would say to speak to your question, you know, we, we uh, explore transportation data that might be about uh, multimodal transportation. It might be about pedestrian counts, uh, all kinds of patterns relating to how people choose to move around urban space. And that is a way to really uh, elevate and, and, and reveal patterns that uh, often conflict with existing sort of storylines about how city spaces function, whether that's a specific square or whether it's a, a corridor uh, within a, a city or whether it's how cities and their suburbs interact with each other. There's very often surprising insights that we can tease out of this data for our public and private clients. Because people that want to find a new place to locate to, they normally have kind of their own mental map of the city, which is not really based on... Um, on the, on the real data, but on their personal perspective of space. Exactly right. So we enjoy writing those storylines on our own, and I think that's part of what makes city life interesting and, and exciting and memorable is we've got associations with specific spaces. Uh, but when it comes to looking to make choices at a, at a larger scale, I think it can be a very useful recalibration of what the current conditions are when we bring these newly available data sources and methods into the mix to be able to 
uh, essentially assess in real time, you know, what are the current conditions in fact. And sometimes that's in conflict with and sometimes it's consistent with the, the storylines that we anticipate. We feel as a team, I think a particular satisfaction when we're able to really um, reveal something that's surprising or even disruptive for our clients because that's where we're really adding some value and helping them guide decision making and, and, uh, and execute their strategy in a, in a clearer way. Yeah, as a urban geographer, that's my, my background. I remember the, uh, the stream in geography that, that developed at Lund University in Sweden in, I guess, the late 1960s or early 70s of behavioral geography and where uh, they researched how people perceive their environment and that it it's often the case that people have a completely wrong picture of their own environment. So either they, they asked you to make a mental map. So they said, can you make a map of your city? And then they put their own home in the middle and then the local supermarket and the school are uh, perceived as, as very important and, and, and put about halfway around. And then anything that's further away is like, you know, just a bit further, but then the next city is on the map uh, just as far as the outskirts of your own city. And I also remember that, for instance, when they interviewed people about why are you living here uh, or why did you decide to move here? And then people say things like, well, uh, because our house is so conveniently located to the supermarkets. But then when you research the data, it turned out that the supermarket was built just five years after these people arrived. So they they change also their perception of decision-making and of the space that's, uh, that it used to be. So they, 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 they mix up data and, and history and locations um, all through their own filter of how they see their surroundings. So I can imagine that in your job, presenting data really as they are is, must often be a kind of wake-up call. It, it can be, Alexander. Yeah, I, I appreciate your, your comments. I think there's a lot of psychology involved in the work that, that we do and the notion or sort of reminders that we typically as people see what we expect to see and whether or not that's in reality what is before us can be a different question. Um, I was involved a number of years ago before, uh, before Visible City in a, in a project where we worked with local school children to undertake a, a design thinking exercise where we asked them to identify community problems and priorities they felt were urgent and, and then worked with them really to develop solutions in an organic way to those, those challenges. And I, I found it so refreshing to work with kids in that setting because they are in some respects uninhibited by uh, the layers of, you know, expectation and bias that we accumulate over time as, as adults. And the priorities that they called out, I think, were not necessarily those that, uh, that adults in decision-making roles would have chosen. And in the end, after there was implementation of some of these solutions, the, the students were invited to the city council to present their work and very much about co-developing uh, a, a democratic process of, of addressing issues in that in that urban community. So it was really uh, one of the many experiences that really later 
informed my um, my work at, at Visible City, which uh, which is which is wonderful. It's been a great contribution. Yeah, and I guess Greta Thunberg, the 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 climate uh, the young climate activist. Great example. Say, well, it's it's a bit like climate that uh, these young kids will be the ones that spend many more years living in that city than somebody who is older and claims to have the, the authority to make decisions. Um, so it's, yeah, it's great to get uh, kids involved and get their mm-hmm. um, independent, fresh uh, look on things. I believe that is true for any field of policy that we're, that we're working in. Get, get the young generation involved, especially since our generation has messed up so many things. So mm-hmm. we, we don't have kind of, excellent proof of concept in our behavior. Otherwise, we wouldn't be That's in these true. difficulties these days. Um, I, was, I was looking at uh, the last 24 hours, of course, I knew that you and I were going to talk. So I was, I was looking through the prism of um, of this, uh, this next podcast. And I just realized how often cities are in the news. I mean, it can be terrible, devastating news like the cities from, from Ukraine that we see that are now being brutally destructed. Uh, by by evil forces, um, but cities also came up uh, last night when I was listening to the State of the Union speech of of President Biden, and also yesterday I was I was going through uh, the IPCC report, only part of it is like I think between three and four thousand pages long, uh, but I was looking at, at at some aspects and there. There's a lot of attention about cities, about how urban populations are especially impacted by, by climate change. So I guess the, the, the IPCC report is also something that you've been following in, in uh, yesterday when it came out. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I think there's, there's so much to talk about there. The, the, the underlying reality that cities are in their essence, they are networks of people who have come together. And I think very often we, we confuse uh, sort of downtowns as, a, as an emblem of a city, for example, with, with the city. And, and I'm an advocate for downtowns, and I, I think there's um, certain critical roles that downtowns can play. But downtowns are not cities, and cities are not just downtowns. Cities are, at their core, essentially venues for convening relationships and for exchange to take place. And I think that is many ways why, as you mentioned, uh, in Kyiv or other places in Ukraine, there's so much symbolic power in, uh, in, in cities. And that's one aspect, of course, is just the, the symbolism of those networks being centered in that kind of urban framework. In addition to that, of course, cities in bringing people together in unique ways also have this kind of transformative or leveraging potential for economic value. And that's particularly true in the current day where uh, if you bring the right people together around a particular uh, intended goal, whether that's commercial or whether it's a social enterprise or other activities, the sort of return on that innovation, the return on that collaboration can be global in nature. And so that makes the role that cities play in bringing these people together and supporting the exchange across those networks that much more crucial. And I think to your point about 
about assessment report six from the IPCC, I, I, I think, you know, the focus on governance and on decision making that is very much in this report is is talking about what is the role of cities in their flexibility in the fact that uh, there can be many things happening within cities all at one time. I think of the fact that parks can play a role in recreation. They can also play a role in stormwater management. They can play a role in serving as a food source. They can play a role in habitat, whether it's for pollinators or other creatures that are, are essential to the ecosystem. I think looking to cities for uh, essentially the, the, the podium for infrastructure that needs to do many things at once. I think that that is one area, again, that will need to feature cities in a really central way. That's some of my response to the, to the latest assessment report. Yeah, and cities will also be heavily impacted by climate change. It's, there's, of course, the well-known heat island effect, and if everything gets warmer, cities also become warmer. Is, is that something that cities are preparing for in, in, in adapting to, to future heat and other stresses? You know, I, I think it is. I, I think heat island effects are a great example of something that is on many is on the radar of many urban decision makers. But also, as the assessment report points out, I think there are some missing pieces in the financial structures that we have set up in the ways of raising capital for I briefly lost your sound. Okay, You're still there? sorry about that. I yep. am here. Um, I think I think heat island effects and tree canopy, it's an area where, for example, we can use data to really understand the uh, the dynamics that are at play in uh, the neighborhood scale or in the city scale or even a broader scale and really be able to target resources or uh, or capital for interventions along those lines. But at the same time, that analysis is only so good as uh, as the resources available to to implement those findings or those recommendations. Um, but yes, to your underlying point, I think you're exactly right that cities are also where a growing proportion of the global population lives. And uh, as, as, a, as a consequence, it's going to be an area where there's going to be a, a really significant amount of impact and in some cases displacement, which is going to be very, very challenging. Yeah, and when I grew up in the 1970s, it was worldwide about 30% of people living in cities and 70% in the countryside. We're now 50 years later, it's now about 50-50. And in another 50 years, it's the opposite from the 1970s. So by 2070, it would be 70% of people living in cities and only 30% in the countryside. So investing in uh, cities that are... Uh, adaptive to to climate change is is important. I think in it's New York where they have the rule that uh, roofs should be painted white, or you can uh, you can plant trees on the roofs and and those kind of measures. If if we look at uh, worldwide cities, which one? If you would have to design a new city, of course, it depends a bit on the place. But w what cities would you draw your inspiration from? Would it be American cities, European cities, or from anywhere else in the world? 
What a great question. Uh, I've never been asked that question before, and I, uh, I'm stumbling a little bit to answer, but I, I think that in many ways when I'm thinking in advance of our, of our conversation, when I was thinking about what are those kind of core characteristics of future cities in the future that will, uh, that, that will thrive, that will uh, be most resilient, I, I was thinking in some sense about an urban pattern that looks more like the past than uh, than, it, than the current. And I think of, for example, the land use pattern that you see in cities that were formed when uh, non-motorized transportation was the, was the dominant mode, or in some cases, the, the exclusive mode. And so you had, uh, because workers and because people going to destinations were on foot, uh, things were were located in proximity in a totally different way than at least most American cities are uh, today. And I think of going forward, I think it's very clear that regardless of whether we're using electric vehicles, et cetera, the reality is our vehicle miles traveled are simply going to have to drop by a very significant proportion. And it doesn't matter how the energy is generated for that mobility. It, there simply has to be fewer miles that we travel and fewer trips that we take going back and forth. So this, this idea essentially of going to a more traditional pattern that was formed uh, and, and you see in many, uh, in many cities around the world, I, I think is going to be a, a key piece of how we build in more redundancy, more resilience into our, into our urban framework going forward. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. I mean, as as a European living in North America now, I I recognize what you say about about American cities. I mean, I've left lived in the United States before, and everything is structured in a way that you that you really need your car. You need you do your shopping by car instead of on a bicycle or instead of walking. Whereas in Europe, I. I don't think I ever used my car for shopping unless it was like you really needed to, to do shopping for next 10 days or so and you, you can't carry it on your bike or or by hand. But, but normally in in Europe, in, in 9 out of 10 cases, I don't need a car to, to do my shopping. And it's uh, I think it also makes cities more livable because you're, you're more connected to the people if you're not in, in the anonymity of, of being in a, in a closed car mm, but you're either mm-hmm. walking or on a bicycle so it, it, it makes it more friendly in a way mm-hmm. and, um, and more livable yeah I, I was just uh, thinking about the same question what cities are popular I would I would look mostly at European cities more than mm-hmm. certainly more than North America although I love New York um, I would say a city like Barcelona is 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 great for the bigger cities. Um, of course, city like Paris is wonderful with with its tradition, with its architecture, its curved streets, its beautiful parks, etc. Um, but for smaller cities, um, I love the cities like you find them in Denmark or mm-hmm. or in the Netherlands or the smaller cities of Germany. They're just uh, they're cozy. They're nice to 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 go to, to, to walk around, etc., And um, I suppose the heat island effect is, is also much smaller in, in those uh, cities. And um, I live here in Ottawa in a city where you have a very concentrated city 
but then around it is something they call the green belt, a, a circle of all kinds of parks and uh, including Gatineau Park, which is really more like, like nature than an organized park. Whereas in the Netherlands, we have the, we have it the other way around. We have a, a ring of cities, uh, within the middle, a, a huge green space that takes you like an hour to drive through in your car on the highway to go from one end to the other. So that's really mm-hmm. like huge. And it's a circle of, of cities, which we never designed that way. It was only when um, the first people were flying over it in an airplane that they realized that there was this, this kind of rim city um, with nature in between or, or nature. It's mostly agri- agriculture. Um, but as a model, I like uh, I like that one uh, that one too. So if, if we go back to this IPCC report, um, what are so we spoke about heat? I guess air pollution. Uh, I know that air pollution was also mentioned as as a big issue. Uh, people on average living like two years shorter in air polluted cities, and um, it's um, yeah. So. Um, I, I wonder in, in so the impact of climate change will be felt in cities and then within cities, I guess the inequality in cities is also something that pops up. Is, is that right? When you look about climate change impact. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, this is a, not to be a broken record here, but I think it's another example of how uh, data analysis can help us again, interpret and understand things that may be uncomfortable uh, in, in some cases around climate change, it's very likely to be uncomfortable how these changes will play out at the local or at the metro scale. There was a very interesting article in the National Geographic, I believe last year, looking at tree canopy and heat island effects and essentially overlaying that tree canopy data with sociodemographic uh, data and looking at where are there concentrations of uh, communities of color living in Los Angeles, and how does that uh, associated with where there's the strongest or most continuous tree canopy? And those kinds of linkages are obviously areas where there's a direct imperative called out in the assessment report to um, not just talk about equity initiatives, but to really make sure that we're that we're pursuing and financing those initiatives, those interventions, if you will to make sure that uh, while these impacts are gonna be overwhelming uh, and, and felt globally, that it's not inequitably uh, distributed uh, to the extent that we can manage that outcome or that goal. Yeah, sort of very much a, a social and, and, and um, an equality element that you, that you find in cities. It's, it's visible mm-hmm. in many ways, but I think in, in measuring tree canopy, um, is an interesting one because trees really lower the temperature since like, I think like five degrees Celsius or something, uh, which is, what is it? Eight or so in Fahrenheit. Uh, so mm-hmm. that is, that makes a huge change. Of course, it's, it's a bit like walking under, under an umbrella or in the full sunlight. You already noticed the difference, uh, of mm-hmm. course. Mm-hmm. And then if we look at cities in, um, in the global South, I guess, again, the inequality factor that cities in the global south are often more impacted by climate change than than in in the western countries is that right it certainly seems to be the, the case uh 
to me, yes, absolutely. In fact, it seems like there's a quite an interesting parallel between what we're describing at the, the local level, at the community level, and at the global level. You've got the same imperatives to address uh, this inequities associated with, with climate impacts. And I think, as you and others have talked about, there's also a, a kind of a direct accountability issue here in terms of the uh, cities in the global south, the communities, the countries in the, in the global south uh, are unfortunately positioned to bear a disproportionate uh, you know, set of impacts from climate change. And at the same time, uh, those countries in the, in the north are primarily uh, the, the, the sources of emissions that are uh, behind the, the change in the first place. Um, so that underlying inequity obviously is, it does have some parallels at the local scale and um, that, that feels quite dramatic and, and maybe overwhelming to have to address um, in, in one document as this report uh, seeks to do, but at the same time, I think that's exactly where the emphasis needs to be placed. Yeah, and also you can, I think you can honestly say that if climate change increases and that's, is 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 clearly happening at the moment and also inequality increases so it's i just wrote like two days ago about um the the compounding crisis that they're they're kind of stacking up and this is this is typically an example so if you get more climate change you get more inequality which ultimately leads to more tensions between groups and that can be the rich and poor in a in a city in the north or it can be between the rich and poor in the city and the south, or it can just be the feeling among people in the global south about the global north. And then if we bring in the, the Ukraine conflict at the moment. I think it's, 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 it's tragic by any way you look at it. Everything that's happening today is, 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 is dramatic. But mm -hmm. apart from the, the horrible human suffering that's being inflicted now, um, it also drags the attention away from the policymakers worldwide that are have all been reminded yesterday by the IPCC report that there simply is no time to lose to avoid the dramatic changes that we're going to see in the world once we pass 1.5 degrees Celsius. And that is, that is going to happen soon. And then we pass tipping points where... You, you can't go back once you've you've passed those tipping points things will be destroyed that that will not return if a species dies out a species will not return um even if 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 you get some cooling afterwards and so i can imagine that the 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 political things that we the, the security aspects that we see see being played out right now will ultimately also uh, impact uh, the climate change, including in in, in people in uh, in cities, and I think sea level rise is an example. The the, the uh, if you look at Bangladesh, there is now daily two thousand people per day that are arriving in the capital of Bangladesh, Dhaka, simply because they've been driven away by the rising seas in Bangladesh, and this number is uh, going to be around two million people that in less than 30 years from now, in, in 2050, will be driven away by rising seas. That's just one country. Imagine 2 million people. You have to build mm -hmm. 
a city or at least some kind of settlement close to the capital city to take care of 2 million people. You need uh, electricity, you need a road, you need sewers, you need education, you need hospitals, you need jobs, you need the whole economy for these people because their lives that they had, either agriculture or fishing or whatever they were doing, all of that is lost. That's just one country. I think that mm -hmm. is from, for somebody who designed city, this must be an enormous, enormous challenge. The, the, the number of city structures that need to be built in the, in the next generation, that is, that must be staggering. Thank you. I, I I totally agree with you. I I think that these kinds of stresses also really lead me to think a lot about the governance theme that is threaded through the the report and absolutely belongs there. I think the the calling out of governance as I'll just quote the report the structures, processes, and actions through which private and public actors interact to address societal goals. I think that that is right along the, the lines we should be using. I, I think there are some implicit questions in there in terms of um, how are the societal goals developed uh, and how do those connect from community to community? And then also importantly, how do we set up institutions and protect the integrity of those institutions to to sort of harness that energy and decision making and and represent the the well-being and the needs of the majority and at the same time defend against the marginal views that as we see you know in our current time i think are stimulated by stresses like climate change and, uh, and other, other factors. We don't need to look to the Russian invasion of Ukraine to, to see good examples. And, you know, I'm here in the U.S. We see some of these dynamics playing out at the school district level where, you know, people are challenging the, uh, the electoral certificates of, of people who offered to participate in a pretty selfless way as school board members. And they're legitimacy is being challenged by by views that I think are very marginal. But I think the ability to have a governance structure that allows us to, you know, really move in a, a, a very long way in terms of transition to uh, to a, a more resilient uh, and um, and sustainable model in the future. That's going to be very difficult to do if any marginal view is able to sort of hijack the discussion or call into question the integrity of the structure as, as a whole. That's going to be very hobbling and will inhibit the really dramatic change that we need to be all, uh, you know, really collaborating toward executing essentially for our own goodwill, for our own, uh, our own survival. No, it's a, it's a frustration. I share very much with you. It's, it's also it's on the one hand, not building long-term policies, but focusing on the short term and the other element, and they are combined, is uh, people f yeah, coming really from a, a marginal point of view, but then being so vocal and 
using social media to express it and really take an extreme position that is so extreme that it, yeah, it really hijacks the debates as we used to know it, let's say 10, 20 years ago, that somebody were, let's say, a bit to the one side, somebody else was a bit to the other side. You were able to find some kind of compromise in, in the middle. And now it seems to be like society is splitting up in in two different groups or maybe even more that basically don't talk to each other anymore and they, they stay in their own echo chambers and social media and they mm-hmm. create their own society. And you get like two societies living in, in parallel to each other but not, not together um, which which makes all policy making extremely difficult, of course, because you need as a you need to be one society. I think in in the the State of the Union speech yesterday, there was typically something that quite often came back in in Biden's speech. He was he was really trying to build bridges and get get Americans together again as 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 one nation because otherwise you can't you can't tackle your your problems and uh, yeah that was that was interesting to see and um, looking at at cities um from a historic point of view because i know that that you're you're interested in that in why did we move to cities originally we were just hunter gatherers walking around and 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 just Kind of living as we pleased in a kind of non, in, in a likely a relatively equal society for the simple reason that nobody had much, so we we were bound to be quite equal. And then then we we moved to cities. Who who invented cities? Why did why did we do that? Great question. I uh, I'm interested, but uh, I will confess a fairly novice student of that question. Um, you know, I, I think that the opportunity to bring together resources through through settlement um, is compelling, obviously, at the very beginning from a, a safety, kind of a, a shared security perspective um, with the agrarian revolution, the ability to begin planting and tending crops in a way that uh, that would create more stability and um, uh, yes, more stability and more predictability. Uh, but I think of, you know, earlier cities or even just cities of the past as, as interesting models for us as we think about what will cities look like in the future. And I, I think of, for example, the move toward uh, some modest specialization you see in, in Venice in the 1400s, you see public coordination of uh, essentially what was uh, a sort of an early version of zoning, a, a, a designation of certain areas of, of the city for particular merchant and marine activities. And you see something similar in, in Amsterdam, you know, uh, not too much later where uh, there's a transformation from essentially a farm village to a, a global power uh, through coordinated attention to shipbuilding and to the kinds of activities needed to, uh, to to reach out to the rest of the world. See the same thing in Manhattan, you know, the garment district, the famous garment district was an example of, um, you know, industries and people coming together where you've got 
kind of specialization of skills and of some infrastructure. And the, the common theme among those is, you know, access to each other. Again, going back to this notion of cities as kind of networks at their, at their fundamental, uh, that people are in conversation with each other and there's um, some shared expertise to support all of those kinds of activities. And um, so I, I think of when we look forward toward what will cities look like in the future, I think there's a lot of writing about uh, mega cities and about the notion that cities will continue to grow in size. I think that that might be uh, the case in some, some areas, but I also think within that we'll see more kind of maturity of communities that are within those larger urban areas that have uh, some aspects in common, whether that's um, uh, whether that's a, a shared history or whether it's uh, uh, an interest in or involvement in a particular industry, or it could be all kinds of sort of interest dimensions, if you will, that will attract people to uh, living near each other and and enjoying the benefits of of doing that. Um, I think that that will clearly be a theme uh, going forward. And I, I do think back to, you know, Ed Glazer, who is, I think, an interesting writer and economist about cities and other topics. He views cities as essentially uh, humanity's greatest achievement uh, to date. And uh, I think clearly there is so much uh, that comes out of urbanization that whether it's arts or uh, you know, religious traditions or cultural traditions, all of that really requires that we're, we're with each other and building something t in tandem together that we could not do in isolation. So um, I think there's, there's a lot to be excited about, even as there's uh, significant challenges um, that we face in the current day and, and, in, and in the future. Oh. Yeah, and that specialization, you see now a lot happening in China. So I believe there's a city in China where they produce more than 9 billion pairs of socks every year, which mm -hmm. basically means that on average, each person on the planet buys a bit more than one sock each year from <laughs> that city. So that's an extreme specialization. And they also have this, this city where everybody specializes in um, copying the great masters of painting. So you have people that the whole day paint Van Gogh paintings. They've never seen a mm. real one. They only know it from photographs, but they make them and they sell them all over the world. So there's another kind of specialty. So it, it seems that cities in China have this, this kind of extreme uh, specialization, which clearly a trend. But you'll see it, for instance, in, in Silicon Valley, which is also typical at a point where mm -hmm. uh, where bright people got together to work on one product. And if, if, if you wanted to do anything in electronics and, and, and computers, et cetera, you had to move to, uh, to Silicon Valley. So yeah, that's, that's clearly a trend. Will cities be bigger uh, or will we see maybe more? Uh, you, you can also have several smaller cities instead of one big city. My, my personal preference, but I come from Netherlands where biggest city in the country is just 700,000 people. Um, I, I prefer a lot of smaller cities. I think they're more cozy. It's more one community, et cetera. But will there be a trend or is it just to have so much urbanization that we go to that all cities will just become bigger? You know, I, I think the answer is yes <laughs> to that mm -hmm. question. I think, 
I suspect most of the of the thinking and writing I think is about about urban growth. Uh, but I I also agree with you that I think it's very going to be very context sensitive in the sense that some uh, some geographies are simply going to facilitate a smaller a kind of urban form in a, in a more natural way. And that will be productive uh, in, in ways that uh, a larger city or a mega city in that kind of context would not be. I, I do think, and I'm calling mostly on the sort of U.S. Uh, sample here, but my, my feeling is that very small cities, small towns, I think there will be uh, kind of continued headwinds for that settlement pattern. It just seems like there is a sort of critical mass that many small towns uh, really struggle to accomplish or, or reach, and that does create, that inhibits their, their prospects to continue to attract young, younger people, to attract uh, capital and other kind of ingredients of successful places. But I, I do think that, you know, larger cities and then communities that may feel like smaller towns but are within a larger urban context, I think that those will be forms that we'll see in a lot of, um, in a lot of places really thrive uh, going into the future globally. Yeah, it sounds like an attractive kind of go-between uh, solution. I noticed last night when, when Joe Biden was talking about cities, it was very much from the point of security, he spoke about more funding for the police. Uh, he immediately tied it to gun control. Um, it seems a bit of a negative way to portray cities. Um, cities can be fun. It can be cultural hubs. Uh, it's, it's. Uh, I see most innovation coming coming from from cities. Uh, it's, it's a place where people can have fun. At least now that the pandemic is more or less over. Um, so I, I, I noticed this, this this negative connotation of cities um, that 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 needed uh, more support, but mainly on the security side. And I I thought that was, um, yeah, I, I I don't really know what I think about it, but I I, uh, I thought that it, 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 cities could have given more uh, more positive attention. Um, so I hope that. Was the kind of work that you do? Did you focus? Uh, you can you can bring in a lot of uh, positive innovation in in cities. Do you take inspiration from cities um, that are not American cities, from whatever Latin America, or maybe from Europe, or in 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 in, in any other way? Yeah, absolutely. I I do. I. Uh... We haven't spoken too much about this, but I have uh, a brother who lives in the Netherlands and so have a, a direct connection there, which has been um, just the source of many insights about cities and about um, the European sort of urban roots in Europe. Uh, it's been a great um, sort of introduction or lens into, into that aspect of, um, of urban study. Uh, but I, I think my sense is that it will be very interesting to understand what the trend lines begin to look like as we enter a more earnest COVID recovery, I think. Um, and again, thinking mostly of, of the U.S. and Canada and Europe here, because I recognize that other parts of the world, the COVID dynamics are very different and the vaccination rates are uh, 
are, are much lower. The access to the vaccine is much lower. But uh, in the U.S., speaking to President Biden's speech, I think that there has been um, a shared sense of surprise and alarm by uh, rates of crime that have increased. And uh, I, I think in a way that have challenged our um, our sense that, you know, since the mid 90s, those those rates of, of violent crimes and property crimes have been diminishing um, in, in cities and metro areas. And this last couple of years has been uh, a change to that trend. And I think that, that is that is concerning. I will be the first to say that uh, I, I support much stronger regulation of, of firearms um, in the U.S. And I think our Constitution uh, does guarantee people's right to uh, to bear arms in order to be in a well-regulated militia. And uh, the vast majority of people who own firearms and and uh, and want and enjoy talking about that do not belong to a well-regulated well, well militia. They they simply don't. And um, I am, I think, in the minority, at least as far as the, you know, the court precedent goes. I think that my interpretation of the Second Amendment is not the current interpretation that um, that is is used in many courts in the U.S. But I, I do think that calling attention to violent crime and uh, and and the fact that that violent crime or property crime um, really does erode kind of community trust and and trust is is the glue not only of the economy but of our society and I think if people feel like they cannot trust their neighbors whether those are immediately next door or um, or, or or less proximate I think that that's a, a really significant uh, force that will that will undermine our ability to do all kinds of things together moving forward. So I'm, I'm glad that he's placing a lot of emphasis on, on that issue and trying to shine as bright a light as, as we can. Yeah, and it also makes sense if you look at other other parts of what he was talking about in, in the State of the Union on basically taxing the rich because um, – in what happened in the past few years is that the richest one percent of America is has been allowed to pay no tax or hardly any tax. Um, that means that inequality in society is growing, and that means that the people at the bottom of 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 the social hierarchy they are the ones that feel the pain for this kind of policy mm -hmm. and that is probably that that um, feeling of being neglected feeling of being unhappy feeling of not being taken care for is a logical it doesn't have to lead to more violence but it's 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 uh, easy to understand that for some people that frustration leads earlier to violence than if you have a system where people are a society that takes care of each other, meaning mm -hmm. that the people that make so clever use of society that they get really rich, that they pay more tax. So you can take care of those people that have not been so lucky, either by their background or by their education or anything else. But okay, I'm a democratic socialist from Europe. So for us in Europe, this is 
the way we govern our country. And it's um, it's fascinating to live in North America and to see how things are or are not organized here. But I, I liked um, that uh, that aspect of um, uh, of of the, of the speech and also of his uh, policies. I just hope that he's able, in a way, to um, to fulfill those hopes and uh, promises of him and the people that uh, that vote for him. Um, mm-hmm. I'm looking mm-hmm. at the clock a bit. Normally, we do this like like 45 minutes. Um, I got basically two questions. One is if um, people that are listening have questions. In that case, just raise your hand. That basically means that call in, call in. So you press on the on the telephone. So if you have any questions uh, for John or for me, for that matter, just uh, press uh, the button. And uh, and I've. Uh, I want to ask him for you. I mean, are there any questions or you on your side? Is there anything left that you would like to uh, to raise uh, in uh, in this talk today? You know, one thing that we had talked a little bit about that I I did want to loop in, Alexander, is is this notion that uh, patterns in cities and connecting cities can create incredibly durable. Uh, legacies or, or consequences. And I think that this, this is something that gives me um, a, sense of, a sense of hope that, that cities not only change on their own, but the way that their relationships exist also changes over time. And therefore, uh, our ability to confront and address, and I don't mean just adapt, but I also mean mitigate the uh, underlying causes of climate change, I, I think, can be an urban uh, solution. And I think of this is a little bit more physical, but I think of the fact that, um, again, going back to Ed Glazer's work, he writes at one point about the fact that in the early 19th century, it cost as much to move goods 30 miles overland as it did to cross those same goods across the Atlantic between. New York and London. And uh, not much longer after that, uh, there was a a canal system uh, that linked the Great Lakes, the Mississippi River, and the Atlantic Ocean together. Uh, And that facilitated the movement of goods in a way that was revolutionary. And to my point about the legacy of that set of investments and that decision, between 1850 and 1970, that's 120 years, at least five of the 10 largest U.S. cities were somewhere located on that, that circuit. And so that's an example of the choices that you make today and the kind of physical commitments that we make about how we organize communities, you know, one by one, but also in collection, uh, uh, really has a, a, a powerful lasting impact. And I think that that is um, something that we should keep in mind as we're, as we're entering you know, what I think is going to be a, a challenging and also incredibly dynamic uh, chapter in, in human history. Yeah, yeah, oh, I'm, I'm fully with you. It's actually a fascinating story how the canal was built because in those early days in the U.S., there was just simply nobody in the United States that was able to build such a canal. So this this one guy uh, who didn't have any background in building canals, he was sent to England to more or less spy at a former colonial oppressor or whatever you want to call England uh-huh. to find out how do you build a canal. 
And so he spent like two years there and then came back. And then as being kind of self-educated, starting to build a canal and connect New York to the, to the Great Lakes. And then mm-hmm. that, that was, that also sealed the future of New York. Otherwise, New York would have been a relatively mm. insignificant city instead of the, 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 the world metropole as it is now. But yeah, mm-hmm. I'm very much with you. The, the challenges that we see in this century are, are so huge and so complex. And the problems that have been predicted for a long time by the experts are hitting us faster and more severe than we, we could have could have thought of, and and it's it's just the the, the speed at at what the world is is moving into now, and in, in in different directions, it's unguided with unclear rules of the game. I think it's it's absolutely scary, and in those kind of fast moving, um, difficult to predict times, it is essential to to be innovative and be daring and to also build now the structures for the future as far as we can imagine that future. And knowing that uh, we're just halfway this move of 70% people living in, 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 in the countryside to moving 70% of people in the city, cities are uh, clearly um, the, the, uh, the kind of battlefield of new ideas uh, where this is all going to take place. So prepare those cities now for everything that, that we will have to deal with. And that includes, of course, all the environmental problems, including climate change. Um, we, we have to prepare now and to imagine the cities of the future. And I can, I can see that with your specialty of using, using all available data, uh, in, Using that for the planning of the best cities of the future—that is—that uh, is essential. You also see it in if you if you look now at the patterns of cities. So, for instance, in um, I live in Netherlands, normally on an island, and there the the, the biggest city is just ten thousand people. That is, if if I need to buy something, I I drive like twenty minutes to the one city on 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 the island, um, and the street patterns, uh, the street pattern of that city is exactly the same as you see it on the maps of the 17th century, which was mm. what we still call our our golden century. We, we were briefly, it was actually less than a century. We were something in the world that, that uh, people were looking up to. And um, in, in those days, this was like, I think, the second city of the country. It is now number 100, if you look at the size of the mm. city. Um, but the street pattern is completely as in those days. So the way they designed the city then for the needs they had in those days and that didn't include um, fiber optic cables, that didn't include cars, that didn't include public transport, that didn't include trains. Um, but the structure they built then is still visible. So anything that you are contributing now uh, to in, in planning a new city is long after you and I are gone, will still mm-hmm. be there and will still be used. And now in this period of dramatic change, um, yeah, it's essential that we that we make uh, the good choices. So, um, yeah, great yeah. point. I, I think too. I I find your 
your note about the the need for uh, the early American engineers to uh, go back to England to research canal building is a great analog for current day. And I think of the unbelievable resource that we have available to us through uh, all of our forms of digital communication. And if you think about every small town and every larger city globally as its own uh, laboratory for uh, moving toward a sustainable and resilient um, uh, you know, future Earth, uh, the, the way that we can use social media and all of these digital connections to quickly exchange that information uh, is pretty profound. And um, I, I see it essentially playing the same role as his journey across the Atlantic to spend two years uh, learning that in England. What does that look like in the modern day? And I think uh, there's a lot of right answers to that question. Yeah, that's a wonderful Wonderful note to uh, to end with. Yes, uh, there's there's a lot to see in the world to look around at, and and I think as Western countries we should also be very open to look at um, at ways of how things are done in other countries. I think they they can learn some things from us, but I think especially there's a lot that that we can learn from other countries that are uh, because the, the changes hit them earlier than we do. They are mm-hmm. forced to in an earlier stage, find solutions. Yes. And so therefore in their solutions, they may be ahead of us. So it's, it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's, uh, yeah, we need a lot of solidarity and cooperation all over the Indeed. world to, uh, mm-hmm. to work on all these issues. Thank you so much for, uh, for joining today. This, this, this was, uh, this was fun. Also the way how you and I met, uh, we were, introduced uh, via um, a, a mutual uh, social media friend uh, who believed that you and I should really uh, talk together. <laughs> and and uh, I, I was really grateful for that introduction. Um, yeah, I hope we will stay in touch. And if something comes up with cities uh, someday, I might uh, might call into you again to, uh, to, uh, to invite you here. So thanks so much. I see some people clapping. That's always wonderful at the end. And people start pushing the clap button. You see these That's claps going very kind. And um, thank you for the audience uh, now that is listening and for the audience that's um, maybe listen to this later on. Tomorrow, more or less the same time, half an hour later than we started today, um, I'll be here again with uh, Alistair Doyle. Uh, we will focus on all kinds of other aspects of the IPCC report um, maybe also on other aspects of the State of the Union speech. Um, I, I hate to say, although climate was uh, a, a, um, a minimal element uh, of that speech uh, because uh, other issues have uh, hijacked uh, the news these days. Um, and uh, yeah, that's it for this week. So may, maybe there's another one popping up this week. But certainly, so for your agenda in 23 and a half hours, <laughs> um, we'll be uh, we'll be back here with uh, with Alistair Doyle. Um, so I um, I hope to uh, to see you all there. Thanks so much, John, and thanks so much for the audience. And I'll end the show here now. Thank you, Alexander.